Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Mariella Frostrup, and this is Books to Live By, a podcast about the power books have to build us. My own education came almost exclusively uh, from the books I devoured, having left school at 15, so I'm fascinated by the reading that shaped all of our lives. In this podcast, I nosily peruse the virtual bookshelves of a rich array of distinguished guests to understand a little more about their worlds and the ways in which books and reading have made them who they are today. In this episode, I'm absolutely delighted to be sitting down with the incredible spoken word artist, activist and podcaster, award-winning podcaster even, George the Poet. Um, Having grown up on a a council estate in London in the 1990s, George Mpanga studied politics, psychology and sociology at the University of Cambridge. His work interrogates almost every important subject we should all be concerned with, the debate on race and class in the UK being just the very start. His award-winning podcast, Have You Heard George's Podcast, is truly innovative, tackling diverse and powerful topics through music, through poetry, autobiography and social commentary. And that podcast is now becoming a book. Have you read George's podcast, combining the podcast scripts with new commentary and insight from George? Uh, George, the poet, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome you at uh, Two Books to Live By. And um, before we start like delving deeper into, into your list of books, I wondered, first of all, when you first discovered reading as as a as a pleasure i know that your mum was pretty forceful in terms of your education uh, did she used to read aloud to you you know what, what do you remember what's your first experience of books yeah well thank you very much for that kind of introduction um, my mum was definitely my first experience of literature she used to take us to the library um and we would just spend hours there we would get lost in um, a really really big children's section from an early age, I developed um, an affinity for reading. And then it plays out across your education. If you're recognised by your teachers as having a strong reading ability, that kind of reinforces your appetite and you just want to keep keep accumulating your, your repertoire, I guess. So what sort of books, I know we're going to talk about a childhood favourite in a moment, but what what sort of books were you attracted by when you were little, when you were in the in the library rifling around with, with your mum and your siblings, I guess? I love storybooks, man. I loved um, a series called Anansi, which is about a, a Ghanaian storytelling spider, if I remember correctly. I used to love fables. It's interesting because I guess I've always loved stories that, were aimed at painting a bigger picture and were deceptively simple. Was there a point um, where you realised that you weren't seeing yourself reflected in books? I mean, you you mentioned Anansi there, the the Ghanaian stories, but but actually, you know, when when you were eight years old, there wouldn't have been the incredible sort of diversity of of reading for kids that there is now, you know. I mean, I I grew up, I I don't think I'd ever seen a, 
a black child in a in a children's storybook. Yeah, yeah. And now whenever I'm buying books for the nephews and nieces in my life, I make sure that um, they're represented in them. Because when I was younger, to be honest with you, I didn't realise what I was missing. And it only occurred to me later on when I started seeing or when I entered conversations about race and when I had the contrast of new media that did represent us, that I started realising how uncomfortable and sometimes dissonant some of these representations felt. Just the other day, I was reflecting on um, a, a DC superhero called Green Lantern. And around the time of my puberty years, there was a version of this superhero who was black. And I remember finding it so weird that there was a black superhero, but it shouldn't be weird, right? So um, over over time, I started developing this awareness. The the children's favourite that that you've chosen um, is is Harry Potter, and I was fascinated by that because it's not just about race. I think you know, as as a child, you know, I grew up poor in Ireland. And um, the books that I absolutely loved were these Enid Blyton books about girls' boarding schools in England where everyone, you know, seemed to lead uh, incredibly sort of affluent lives and uh, played lacrosse and had midnight feasts and japes and things. And and for me, that was a really fantastical world to imagine. Um, was there an extra element, do you think, to the Harry Potter books for you? Because, again, they, they are very much sort of based in a sort of English tradition of educational establishment and everything, no matter how far-fetched the, the actual imaginative flights are. Mm. And it's funny because I had no context. I had no experience of the kind of educational establishment that Hogwarts represented. But I loved the character of Harry, the underdog. We all love that. I think we all kind of love that about the character. Um, I loved the, the 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 detail. I loved the detail of this world that J.K. Rowling built. It was just I'd never experienced anything like it. It was so rich that for the first time in my life, and I'm sure the first time in the lives of a lot of children, I was more addicted to this reading experience than any any other form of entertainment. I would stay up late. I would I would hurt my eyes. I remember I had headaches from trying to read late into the night just because I was so addicted to what was basically an immersive experience through reading. You picked Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Was it that book in particular or was that just the beginning of your Harry Potter uh, addiction? And, and were you one of those kids that would like queue outside the bookshop for hours on end you know, the <laughs> night before? Um... It was the beginning, so I didn't realise this was a series. I thought at that time there were only three Harry Potter books out and I liked to push myself, so I went for the longest one, not realising that it would it would have made more sense if I started with the shortest and progressed to the middle one. But what that meant was that I was thrown, I was completely thrown into the world and the whole magical universe. And when I went back and read the other two, I really enjoyed them as well, but I just always had a soft spot for The Prisoner of Azkaban. And we, we talked about how your mum used to take you to the library, but you're one of, of six children, so I presume it wasn't just you that she took. Yeah. Did she manage to inspire the rest of your siblings in the same way? Yeah, 100%. 100%. Each of my siblings have their own talents and their own specialities. Um, for example, 
My my brother's a, a a real musical talent. My sister is just a natural born scientist and like analytical thinker. Um, and my other brothers just are, are unique in, in in beautiful ways. But definitely, we all. Um, I, I, what it does reading early, it just demystifies a lot of this stuff. And it demystifies the English language generally. So you feel confident that you can communicate and understand. And it kind of impacts, like it is like a superpower, actually, isn't it? Because, yeah. you know, it, it gives you access to everything else that yeah. you need to know. It's like the first really major building block. I know, um, you know, your mum's plans obviously worked and, and you ended up going to Cambridge. Um, you've likened your first days at university in Cambridge uh, to being at Hogwarts. Mm. Why was that? So this was now my, well, I, I had an experience similar in, 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 in the grammar school that I went to, but the architecture, I would say, the architecture of Cambridge and the robes, people wore robes for certain occasions and there were um these buildings was and these institutions were so storied that it just felt a little bit otherworldly especially the college i was at kings i think kings was modeled on i think hogwarts was modeled on kings people say so did you suddenly understand the world that you thought was fantastical actually existed well like i said um over the years i'd uh, learn a lot more about Britain and through my grammar school, which is a very conservative, old school grammar school, man. It was, it's, it, it was, by the time I joined, it was over 400 years old. So I had some exposure to, to this world. It was far, I, I want to move on from childhood, but it was far from, from your house, your school, I think 13 miles or something. And so that would have meant that your friends at school weren't the friends that that, that you'd hang out with when you got home in the evening and things. And that's quite difficult when you're a kid because it sort of sets you apart, doesn't it? What what impact do you think that had on you? Um, I think it, it taught me to embrace the world, being in the location that my school was in, it was the suburbs, it was a very affluent area. So I was also interested in um, the the differences in our areas and, and, and why some people are rich and some people are not. I was, I was inspired, as I've said in my podcast, I was inspired by um, the journey, just seeing, just from North London to Northwest London, seeing how much things changed um, so it was difficult, but I think at the same time, it was much needed exposure at an early age. You said um, that you were intrigued by, you know, why some people are rich, some people aren't. And uh, the rest of your book selection is very much zooming in at, at different angles of that, isn't it? So it's clearly something that's remained um, of interest. But the thing that um, I noticed before we go on to them is that um, there's no... I mean, yeah, you you can read all of these books that we're going to go on to talk about for pleasure, I suppose, for intellectual inspiration, for, for ideas and things. But there's no, like, relaxing reading here, George. Yeah, yeah, I know. I thought about that, man. I thought hard. I think what happened is reading for pleasure got overtaken by uh, music in my life. So music gave me the reflection space that, you know, reading for pleasure usually would. And I became conscious of language even more. As I became a teenager, I became a rapper. And I realised that there are no books that are written in language that I um, 
as comfortable and as relaxed with in, um, compared to the language of my music. And that became very, very important. So because I was um, so overstretched as a student during those years, I started being very practical with my time. So if I had any downtime, I was listening to rap. It was really grime music back then. And I was developing my own lyrics. So that became my, and, and it was just like that for years. Then I, I got to university and got back into academic reading. By that point, I became a, a poet. So I started translating my experiences in all of my downtime. And I, there was nothing coming to me from the literature world that did for me what the what the world of rapping and, and, and writing and poetry did. And do you still feel like that? I mean, do you read poetry or do you listen to rap? And is that that where you go for, for that particular sort of, uh, you know, I mean, entertainment, I suppose, in a way. I mean, people do read for entertainment. I have done for the majority of my life. I've listened to rap music for entertainment and just relaxation you're finding me at an interesting point right now where it's not doing it for me. Not just rap, but no music is really doing it for me. It's these books that are doing it for me. I'm addicted. I'm, I don't know what happened. Maybe it's re-entering education and starting my doctorate in the past year that has really just activated something in me. But it, it, it's like now all of my downtime is dedicated to searching for answers for que of, of questions that I've had sitting in my subconscious for a long time. And that that's what relaxes me. That's what makes me feel like, you know, I'm okay. I think you're okay. Let's listen, let's talk about um, one of those choices, which is Why Nations Fail by Darren Asimoglu. Is that how you say it? Asimoglu, so. do you think? Yeah. Uh, and James A. Robinson, which is, you know, really a kind of revolution, very intellectual, slightly revolutionary thesis in the way it looks at how the formations of, of institutions across the world had a, a kind of big impact on the outcome of, of what later became nations. Why don't you explain it? You can do better than me. Yeah, no, that, that, that was a very um, succinct summary. So Asimoglu and, and Robinson have this view of how the world developed, which is institutional. So let's look at how the systems of our current nations were born. And a lot of it is about negotiations between the masses of people and small communities of elites. They don't assume that this is an intentional, conscious, predictable process. They take you through world events like the plague, the colonial era. And, 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 and I love that they're able to go across time like that. They go deep into Venetian history, Roman history and, 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 and Mesopotamian history. And it's, is sick. So, so for me, my dad gave me that book as a Christmas present years ago. I think that that book was instrumental in reawakening me to the potential of literature to give me that peace of mind because that book gave me peace of mind. See, what a lot of people don't know is that for people like us who are um, from countries that were formerly colonized, when that history doesn't go explained, we develop psychological problems. A lot of it is about resentment for the past. 
sometimes it, it's even resentment for your ancestors because you're just thinking to yourself, how did this how did this situation end up here? But the way that these guys framed their version of world history, it gave me a lot of closure because it, it made sense. You know, you, you know, when you read something that rings true, it just made sense. It, 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 it made me feel like um, our, our world is, is a complex place. Um, but what we have done as, as humans to set ourselves apart from the rest of the animal kingdom is that we've imagined things that don't exist and we've pursued that imagination. And the way we've gone about it is by collaborating. But the terms of those collaborations, whether they were exploitative or whether they were inclusive, that's just that's the, that, that's the beginning of understanding when it comes to world history. And doesn't it also talk about China? I hope I'm not getting confused with one of the other books, but doesn't it always talk, also talk about China and talk about the fact that China um, may look like it's this growing economic powerhouse that's soon to rival America and so on, but that actually they think that it doesn't have the second element that you need to really become uh, yeah. an economic powerhouse, which is that it doesn't... Have, so it's got centralised power, which they uh, assert to be imperative, but it doesn't have inclusion and diversity. And without that, you end up... And it got me thinking about Russia, actually. If you look at Russia now, huge, huge amounts of of of, of uh, money gone to a very small select group of people but it's not spread out across the country at all and so actually that's why russia is so precarious economically is because none of it filtered across or down or yeah. and and isn't that part of the theory here yeah so they actually come to china last and in order to build up to that point they do use the um the russian example you know i said um there are collaborations that lead to progress and the terms of those collaborations is everything. So they um, identify extractive terms, which are based on elites extracting value out of everyone else and leaving, leaving the, the system to take care of itself. It's obviously inherently short term. It's a short term approach. You can, you can um, exploit the masses up to a point, but after that point, what you haven't done is develop their potential. You haven't developed their ability to um, sustain. Generate. This, yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. To, to, mm. to, to sustain the system. And you've also, you've missed out on, on, on talent, on, on, on the best necessary people to continue um, developing that society. Your, your family are from Uganda uh, and I think left partly as a result of, of Idi Amin. Um, and, have you ever read a book called Dictatorland? I think it was by Paul Kenyon, I think. I just mm. wondered, talking about that that system, that extractive process, you know, it is something that's happened quite a lot in Africa as yeah. well, in, in various nations. And, you know, there's a lot of talk now about restorative justice and getting money back from previous regimes, mm -hmm. you know, that have basically stolen the assets of what is, you know, the most magnificently resource-rich mm. continent, uh, you know, on our planet. Reading a book like this, does it make you hopeful uh, for political change in the future or just recognise the pattern of political corruption and short thinking? I mean, you've once, I think you once said to, was it to Krishnan Gurumurthji that you don't believe in the possibility of political change. That That's, that's yeah, yeah, depressing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So based on our current systems, we've got to be careful about how we talk about change because 
Asamoglu and um, Robinson explained this point really well at the start of Why Nations Fell. Oh my God, I love that book so much. <laughs> they explore all of these theories on development. And they say, some people believe that it's the geography. Some people believe that it's the poor selection of leaders. And all of these superficial um, analyses, superficial in the sense that you you look, you look take what is happening at face value. And they explain that all of this is insufficient to understand the nature of poverty and, and, and failing nations. It's insufficient because there are systems that have been worked into the logic of every society. And those systems, you can't copy and paste them. You can't just teach. You can't just talk at people. Those systems develop out of history. I love One thing I love about this book is that it gives a sense of atonement. Like eventually every society, you're going to have to atone for the reality of the lived experience, right? So if, if people's reality in, your, in that country is that they were um, exploited forever and there is the illusion of progress because they have consumer goods, which is a big thing across Africa. People have iPhones, people have Wi-Fi and gadgets, yeah. but, but the stuff systems... that you can show off. We've got stuff, right, mm. that, look, that make us look like we're participating in, you know, global capitalism in a, in, in, in a real way. But if the systems that produce leaders and produce industries, if those systems are not truly inclusive of people, then there is going to be no long-term change. But w- what that book also does for me is it encourages me, it reassures me that there are ways of analysing this world that are understandable to normal people like us. You don't necessarily have to go to Cambridge to get this information. Um, so I am really inspired by the prospect of democratising and demystifying a lot of this knowledge. I think that's where the change is going to come. It's interesting you talk about the gadgets and the sort of bling of consumer culture. And I I wish I could remember who it was, but uh, I was reading someone analysing kind of the whole thing that comes with rap. Because one of the disappointing things is you have these guys and they're singing about really, or rapping about really profound things. And then the next time you see a photo of them with like a Ferrari and, and, and you know, a huge gold chain around the neck and you think, God, this messaging is so complicated because on the one hand, I really respect what you're saying and, and what you've what you've expressed about culture or society now. Mm. <laughs> What's with the car, you know? Yeah. And and I think that it, it it goes exactly to your point about if you know you've got to look at the substrata and and see what the messaging is that's been instilled mm. that then makes someone perhaps choose an easy route to establishing position. Mm. Mm. But but then, I mean, yeah, just I, I I agree with all of that. And one of the other books that we're going to talk about explains all of that which we're all contending with, we're all trying to figure out how to establish ourselves in our current economic system. But from an African lens, from the lens of black people, it is extra complicated. And the reason why it's extra complicated is because all black people were dragged into capitalism. You know, the capitalism that we all contend with now, or that we all live within now, um, was developed in Western Europe and took off in North America. But we didn't, as as black people, we didn't get five minutes to strategize about 
how we're going to, um, you know, build our societies through this thing. We're swimming against the tide in many ways. So what happens is um, you get cultural icons from the black world who are able to reveal really interesting and amazing things about contemporary life through their music. But what they can't do is override the system. Going back to um, Asimoglu and Robinson's framework. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. You mentioned uh, another book that, that we're going to go on to talk about, and I think it's the one that you describe as the book that opened my eyes, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. Is that the mm. one you're referring to by yeah. Walter Rodney? Yeah. So t- tell me about that book. It's a, it's a natural segue, so let's naturally segue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so remember, you asked me about reading for pleasure. What's going on? Like, how come all of my books are so heavy? And this is another example of a book that was... Um, a matter of personal closure for me, a matter of personal healing for me. Walter Rodney wrote How Europe Underdeveloped Africa in, I think, just just before 1980. And he was reflecting on, or he was influenced by a lot of new thinking about the direction of the black world, etc. And the frustration of liberation movements in North America and in on the African continent. He was able to map out an interpretation of black history, of African history, that explained the reality of colonization. So, but at the time when he was writing, the process of decolonization was only 15, 20 years old. So there was a rich, or there was a, 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 yeah, there was a deep history of African colonization to be unpacked. And he was saying, look, man, this whole thing, no matter what the propaganda says, this was an economic exercise. Europe really needed an engine or was attracted to Africa as an engine for her economies. You know, all the European neighbours that engaged in uh, the colonisation of Africa, they had a shared mindset, which was one of imperialism. You know, that this was the era of the empire. We're going to plant our, our flags in the ground. Um, we have the the industrial advantage. We have the um, connection to the world system that a lot of these African polities don't have. So what we're going to be able to do is establish ourselves on that continent and use it as a workhouse. So what that book showed me is that in that period, in the period of colonization, African life pivoted from being truly African in the sense that it was governed by African 
histories, African systems, land was used for sustenance and community building. And as the book explained, in all of these African polities, there was a a trajectory of development, political development, military development. Of course, there was a, 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 a gap in terms of industrialization, but there was a trajectory nonetheless. Um, and the colonial project just reoriented the whole continent and made made the core function of African life Western consumption. But isn't the other point about it that um, that basically Africa was absolutely imperative to Western economic success? So rather than it's like a mind shift about it that rather than um, victims in a way, there's even though it's a terrible and dysfunctional system and slavery is a stain on humankind, there can be some degree of pride, dare I put it like that, in, in understanding that without Africa, none of the rest of it could have happened. The rest of um, the rest of Western development and success mm. and capitalism and everything else. I mean, it's a terrible price, mm. uh, you know. But 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 there was something I thought really fascinating about their theory, which which was actually about seeing Africa as indispensable mm. rather than just a provider of manpower. You know, you know all right. of the, the ways it, it might have been dismissed in the past. Right, and and it's really complicated. It, the older I get the more complicated it becomes because myself and many Africans and non-Africans and former colonized people around the world, I don't think we'll ever feel um, any pride about it because what was the win? If it was the advancement of global order where corporations, ultimately big, powerful corporations, as they did in the colonial era, have you know evolved in, into the most influential sovereigns of of our modern era that doesn't even serve the majority of europeans uh and at the same time the the conversation around reparations is still framed as laughable by the british establishment it's framed as unreasonable it's framed as unfeasible and that's so deeply dishonest and deeply unfair that we're so far from ever feeling any pride about this you know I turned down an, an MBE a couple of years ago for these reasons. There's been no reckoning. There's been no atonement. There's been no shame. Already, we have uh, people in influential positions who push back on, 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 on the idea that we need to decolonize the narrative of the British Empire. People talk about no longer having to apologize for Britain's colonial past when there, there never has been an apology. So we're, as Africans and many formerly colonized peoples, we're stuck in systems that we never had a say in, we didn't we didn't get a vote. I think pride was probably the wrong word, but I think you also probably know what I was trying to to get at there, which was just a a, a kind of reshift of of of, of, of a sense of how important Af- Africa has been. You turned down the MBE, which, which suggests that you think that change can only come if you don't work within the systems no. that already exist. No, that's, that, that's not what I think. No? Tell me. No. 
So my turning down the MBE was um, about the lack of atonement, the lack of reckoning on empire in particular. Now, a lot of people within the um, MBE, the honors system said to, not a lot of people, but influential people within it said to me, George, you know, this, you, you could be cutting off your nose to spite your face here. This is a big opportunity. And there is talk about reconsidering the wording of the, of the honor. To those people, I said, A, if they're going to revise that wording, just do it. Let's don't talk to me about the talk that might happen one day because we've been having that appeasement talk for a long time. B, even if that wording is changed, the implications of, of, of empire on the rest of us, on the rest of the world, it's not enough, you know? It's, 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 it's just not enough. So I have no problem with working within the structures and the systems and the institutions of Britain to effect change. I think that's a, a good strategy. I just don't accept that having the word empire after my name as a way of saying, well done for the work that you've done. I don't think that that's appropriate. And I don't think that's a, I don't think that's truly change. That's, that's just a PR exercise. Nothing has changed. So tell me, um, it makes you a bit of an outlier Forgive the cheesy segue, <laughs> but um, tell me a bit about Malcolm Gladwell's book and, 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 and why that appealed so much to you. I believe that in, in a way we have to blame Malcolm Gladwell for you not becoming a singer, or at least we can have look to him for an explanation for why, <laughs> for why you didn't become a singer. Um, so Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers, great book, just great. How do I even... <laughs> how do I even well, it Brilliant. talks about success, doesn't it? It talks about success and how we deem people to have been worthy of success because they have certain attributes. We corral success with with other things that aren't yeah. necessarily part of that same bundle. That's right, yeah. So a lot of the time we individualise success and we focus on um, some magical qualities that this person might have or some outstanding genius. But Malcolm Gladwell makes the argument that Success is often a collective project. In, in any individual life, there is a number of histories and influences and, and, and contingencies that influence the, the, the direction that they take. He looks at it on an individual basis, using individuals who can speak to a broader m- moment, like uh, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs and Bill Joy. But then he looks at how those individuals are part of bigger things, how the three men I just mentioned were all born in the same year. So they came of age at a time where the computer revolution was ripe for the changes that they brought in. But they were also, um, I just, no, sorry to interrupt, but they were also, they were born at the right time. They were also economically in a situation where I think each of them had, you know, their own access to computer equipment and things. Right, Before before the rest of the world. Yeah. Exactly. So there are all of these factors that are real. These these things are material. But as long as we have this individualized, celebritized idea of success, we're going to ignore. And so after reading that book, I started looking around at the icons that I've always uh, looked to for inspiration. And I start noticing, I, I start noticing similar things. This is what I'm saying about books that just ring true with you. You can read something and it's a theory, but when you look up and you can see it in front of you, it's the same things that have always been staring at you. That's a truly transformative experience. I've always been um, inspired by the career of Jay-Z and um, a counterpoint to Jay-Z 
within New York hip hop has been uh, P Diddy. I don't know what's his latest name, but yeah, let's say Puff Daddy P Diddy. And um, I noticed that they they were also born within month, months of each other. And I noticed that they were also of age. They they went on to become hip hop's first pioneers in so many ways, business moguls, or, or early ones, not the first, but the earliest. I just noticed all of these factors that make it more likely for people in their position to capitalize on the opportunities that their specific window of time offered them. And that just made me think in, in, in broader terms about how we can start to try and see the unique advantages of our situation as communities, as societies, especially those of us who come from impoverished communities. Well, in fact, that takes us to Prisoner to the Streets by Robin Travis, because you talk about the unique factors. First of all, you know, looking at the factors that made up your childhood and your experience here, they wouldn't necessarily lead you to think, oh, he's going to go to Cambridge and now then he's going to a bit later, he's going to do a doctorate and he's going to be a poet and a writer and a, you know, so... What do you think were the factors that took you on one path and an awful lot of your contemporaries, um, particularly in the St. Raphael's estate in Neasden, yeah. on a completely different journey? Thank I you hate the word journey. The Trip. I, <laughs> I know, but journey is, 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 is what it Overused. is. Overused. It? <laughs> it's a cliche, but for a reason. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hop on the the few books that we talked about to explain the factors that have allowed me to carve out a slightly different path. So if you take Walter Rodney's How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, he talks about um, colonial education and he talks about how it was a very contained operation within British colonies, specifically within Uganda. He actually references Uganda a lot in the book. But um, what happens is that the colonial authorities provide a limited amount of education, firstly, to keep the population educated along their own industri- along the industrial strategies of the colonial authorities, but then secondly, to create a class of colonially educated Africans who were intended to really represent the authorities and were intended to be to appease the masses, you know, give them the the idea that some of them are, are, are making it and they have the opportunity to ingratiate themselves with the um, colonial polity. You've got yeah. to read Dictatorland. I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> Dictatorland is on the list. All right, I remember that. Um, but my grandfather was a product, or, yeah, one of my grandfathers in particular, my dad's dad, was a product of um, such a colonial education so was my grandmother. Aside from that, my other set of grandparents also had an untypical advantage in 20th century Uganda. And all of this stuff is like happenstance. Some of it is, you know, all of these grandparents started off from humble beginnings, let's put it like that, but they were able to use these advantages to create more advantages for their children, advantages that the masses of Ugandans didn't have. So when their children grow up, meet each other and have my siblings and I, even moving to Britain under traumatic circumstances without any money and without any connections, couldn't eradicate the um, 
the advantage the that... advantage that has mm-hmm. been accumulated by that point it's a long process now to take Malcolm Gladwell's outliers and look at how he talks about you know not not trying to individualize the success the story of what people know as George the poet is often framed as a kid who you know had a exceptional um, ability with language and super smart and was able to come out of the council estate and whatever but the things that allowed me to navigate my way through the estate and through um, education and through the entertainment world they were already in place before I was born that's what Malcolm Gladwell explains my mum's affinity with language with the English language you know the, the majority of the Ugandan population didn't have that in the way that she did at the time but also, you know, my, my father and the the cultural richness that he and his um, heritage uh, contributed to my life. All of these things just made it so that growing up in the estate, I didn't feel like, I didn't feel like the streets was my only option. I didn't feel like any material deprivation that we face today is fixed and is defining. But to go back to... Uh, how Europe underdeveloped Africa, the masses of Africans were set up to feel like that. The masses of um, former children of and and descendants of people who were enslaved, they were set up to feel like their situation is fixed and that there isn't much to live for and that they, their options are either you go along with a situation that has never worked out for your ancestors or you reject the whole situation and you try and establish whatever autonomy and whatever short-term wins and whatever meaning that you can on your own terms. But George, is it not possible as well, which would be the complete antithesis of of what I think you want to say, that you're an example of the system working? Yeah. Um, I, I have a thought about that, but yeah, tell me what you think. Well, I just think in terms of, I mean, you and I are sitting here, very different experiences. But, you know, I came from a middle class family, but my father was an alcoholic and and so we had no money. And I left school at 15. I came to London on my own. Uh, Like I said in the introduction, I read and I learned that way. I never finished school. I never had further education. And, you know, I've done okay. It's fine. (laughs) It's been a lot more work than it might have been the other way around. But, you know, and, and your experience, you know, which we've discussed during this is again, you know, to do with the fact that because parents or grandparents uh, had a certain experience and managed to, I don't know, what do we, what do they call it, better themselves, that then that advantage passed down to you. Isn't that actually the the basis of the whole sort of capitalist system? Mm. And and so we have to get rid of all of it if we're to change it completely and make sure that, you know, every child has the exact level, same mm. degree of possibility. Well, first of all, I don't feel like, I don't accept the last bit. I don't, I don't feel like in order to create a more equal world, we're going to have to get rid of all of it because it's not, that's not, first of all, it's just not possible. It's, Again, go, going back to why nations fail, you have to account for history. You can't, you can't shortcut what you know the actual path of development that any society has taken. So, but I if believe you look that, at the world now and the fact mm. that we've you know we've got this uh, environmental disaster, you know, climate crisis, uh, you know, you look at the tectonic plates of power shifting and everything, you you, you do think capitalism. 
Mm. It's very hard to see how capitalism is going to dig us out of the hole we're in because endless consumption just isn't possible. And right. societies based on that aren't aren't sustainable. I want to I want to get back to your initial question though, because you, you you were playing the other side and saying, doesn't my success imply that the system is working? Works. And it mm. and, and it all depends on how you assess success. So it's never been my argument that you 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 can't have any fun in capitalism, or you can't make money, or uh, you can't go and get an education that will allow you to progress in your lane. What I have experienced across my life, though, is that my personal success necessarily isolates me, alienates me from the rest of my um, the experience of my community and my family. It does, the, and and I and I saw it as soon as I got to grammar school. Remember. We talked about my grammar school being physically far away. So I necessarily have to let go of my social group. This is before mobile phones as well, before social media. I necessarily have to lose friends in order to pursue a better life, right? But in a broader sense, I come home, I do my, I've done my education and I'm able to use my skills, which I do recognize within, within this system, I've been able to use my skills to... Um, improve my situation and to contribute something meaningful, I think, to society and to the world. However, in that time, inequality has deepened. The gap between the top earners and the lowest earners has widened and it's been more pronounced in my in my community at the same time as austerity politics setting in, completely decimating the spaces and the provisions that are supposed to support a sense of community that is supposed to catch all of the kids that don't have my advantages, that weren't born to, um, you know, the son of an attorney general of whatever former, former colony that they came from. A lot of the kids that I grew up with, there's two halves of my lives. There's my grammar school friends and there's my primary school friends. And in the difference between them, you can see why I don't find the system acceptable. Well, then let's just end really on talking about Prisoner to the Streets by, by Robin Travis, which you said is the book that you've read more than once. And I, I think partly because it, it illustrates that chasm of experience. Yeah, yeah. Robin Travis is an amazing person who went through the worst of the street, who went through the worst of, you know, the um, heritage of slavery and and colonialism. His, 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 um, his story is both Caribbean and South African. And from his story, you can see how these traumas play out, how they, how the disappointments of the um, liberation movements and the civil rights movements uh, uh, affected the, the gener- his parents' generation and eventually led, to, led him to a life in Britain of completely not belonging, of anger, of lack of knowledge of self. Personally, I know Robin and I've developed a relationship with him over the years after him publishing this book. Prisoner to the Streets is an autobiographical account of conflict in Hackney and how it stemmed from, um, you know, interpersonal problems. But what we've both, Robin and I, have, have been able to see over the years is that, A, what he describes in Hackney, um, in terms of the, the conflict that Hackney had with Tottenham, that has happened across the black world, across the black urban Western world, not necessarily Africa, but black communities in white countries. For some reason, there's been this long term breakdown of conflict resolution. And then on top of that, there's been um, 
I'm cautious about saying a culture of criminality because I don't want it to get taken out of context. But of course, there is an extent to which crime becomes acculturated in response to the lack of employment, in response in response to the lack of opportunity, in response to the frustration. Mariella, I'll take you to back to the start of our conversation today when um, we were talking about reading and language and how it's a superpower, right? Now, if... Um, swathes of, of, of the black population and the and not just the black population but the population in general if whole groups of the population are alienated from that superpower for reasons that they can't understand before they're even able to articulate all of the forces acting on them then routinely those people are locked out of a lot of the economic opportunities that this country is supposed to afford them so through his autobiographical experience um, account Robin Travis is able to explain how these um, co- these apparently isolated and individualized traumas, families breaking down, arguments in the streets, can evolve into really problematic lives. But what he is trying to explain is that you you multiply this by tens of millions, and you can explain the cycle that a lot of our young people, not just black and brown young people, but a lot of our young people in the in the most deprived parts of the Western world, that's what they're going through. But it's also uh, just finally going back to Malcolm Gladwell. Um, uh, when you talk about success and outliers, it's also about the people that we venerate, isn't it? And oh. you know, I would argue, and and you're probably going to disagree vehemently with me, uh, vehemently with me. But mm. you know. Stormzy with a photo of 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 him looking like he's a gangster mm. uh, on a huge billboard above Shepherd's Bush to promote an album mm. is really potent imagery that just enforces all the stereotypes uh, about a culture and yet he's more likely to be venerated than someone like you who's creating these extraordinary podcasts who's having huge thoughts about you know the world and the shape of it and how we change it mm. and until those sort of the, the focus changes nothing will change i don't disagree with you vehemently i just i, I would i would i would say that there's more there's more to the problem. You're right. The fetishization of gang culture is a serious challenge. It's, it's been the bane of my life. It's, it's, it's what got me into social, social analysis. Because early on in my council estate, I was like, I want to be a scholar. I want to be a lawyer. I want to inspire and I want to represent our community to uh, reach its potential. And a lot of my friends were like, I want to be a gangster. And I thought, again, we individualize this stuff. So I thought, you're make, it's, it's just a series of people making bad decisions. And those people, they're going to reap what they sow. But what hopefully what the book selection that I've put forward today represents is the macro vision. It's looking at the big picture. It's looking at how Stormzy has to tell his truth. So Stormzy appearing as a gang member in a big billboard, first and foremost, before it's offensive, before it's problematic, it is true to him. Rap cultures um, and, and, and street culture in general in the black world is built on authenticity. You need to, you can only be valuable in this space if you're telling us your real story. But then you got to look at 
why the industry finds that so much more marketable than me. There are, there are bigger stories there about representational politics, about stuff, about decisions that were made by Hollywood in the 1960s in response to the civil rights movement. I have to give a shout out to Ethna Quinn. She's written a great book about this. It's called um, A Piece of the Action. It was released um, not, not too long ago. But a lot of that explains how the image of the black working class community became so ghettoized and and how that was fed into and how that was a response to Hollywood's reluctance to um, structural change. The federal government was coming down hard on Hollywood and saying you need to provide jobs for black people. And what emerged was a black exploitation culture where black people presented defiant images of themselves and that was co-opted by the industry and that was fed into hip-hop culture and that was fueled by neoconservatism and neoliberalism under the Thatch and Reagan era. It's a long-ass story. So what I'm not going to do, and which I started doing earlier in my career, I'm not going to place it at Stormzy's feet. Stormzy is one part of the whole equation and the part that he's playing is telling his truth. I can't start with a charge against him. The charge that I start with is the system that ensures these outcomes. And there is a system at work. Okay, well, I'd lobbed uh, a grenade, I suppose, if you use that warring language, um, at Stormzy. So I'm going to actually make up for it now by just saying there was a book. Uh, you may well have read it, but I thought you would be really interested in it if you haven't. If you decide to, like, just lift yourself down from your lofty intellectual heights and just have right. a, a bit of fiction uh, for <laughs> right. a little weekend holiday or something. Mm. Uh, and it's published by Murky Books. It's called We're All Birds of Uganda oh. by, by Hatsaza. Diane, which is a great that, book. That was that was going to be on my list, yeah, but, but <laughs> I just wanted to get all of this stuff off first. Yeah, well, I love maybe, maybe you come back again and we can do the fiction list next time around, next series. Yeah, man. Yeah, maybe. Uh, which means maybe. You say definitely. I mean, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I've only got so much time on this earth, man. <laughs> yeah, to meet me twice on Zoom, not surely oh, no, too much oh, no, of a no, challenge. So, oh, no, talking to you is not the problem. Having a whole list of fiction ahead of this non-fiction, I don't know about that. I'm so glad you made that clear because I was feeling really, really insecure there for oh. a second. <laughs> uh, George, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much um, for taking the time to, you know, just discuss in such uh, fascinating detail some of these big ideas uh, that are roaming around your head right now. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Books to Live By with me, Mariella Frostrup. I do hope you enjoyed it. To make sure you never miss an episode, please follow Books to Live By on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or the Times Radio app. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.